Hello and welcome to the Mage the Hero Described podcast. No intro song, no overproduced intro, nothing to wait through. Just talking mage and related Matt Wagner stuff. This is the show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series, and I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins. In this episode, we're actually featuring an interview with a Kevin Matchstick cosplayer. Really looking forward to it. Hope you enjoy it. Before we get into this episode, into the interview, a spoiler warning. If you haven't read any of the past Mage comic series uh, and the latest issue at this point, that would be Mage the Hero Denied, issue number seven, there are spoilers in this. So you might want to uh, keep that in mind before you dive in because... We do risk spoiling the latest issue and parts from past issues from Hero Discovered and Hero Defined pretty much completely and totally. Enjoy the interview, and until next time, stay excellent. All right, everybody, I am pleased to let you know that we've got a special guest on today's show. We're being joined today by Steve Fritzinger. Steve was featured both on Matt Wagner's Facebook page as well as in the letter column for Mage Hero Tonight, issue number three. He had that awesome Kevin Matchstick cosplay with the light-up bat. It's just awesome. You can already, you can see this in a, as mentioned in for... Um, for that issue uh so take a look back at the gallery i'll probably post it with this as well so you can take a look plus direct you to his blog where he details the construction of this bat and it's been quite a journey so without any uh, further ado uh let's uh let's bring in steve from fairfax virginia welcome to the podcast steve thank you kevin Hey, um, you know one of the things before we talk about your cosplay how you developed it and that amazing bat wanted to just ask you about you know being a mage fan uh, I've mentioned in the past that always interested in hearing people's mage stories you know, how they've discovered it what they like best about it do they have you know, do you have favorite characters moments you know pretty much anything uh, can you talk about you and mage Sure. Um, I missed Mage when the hero uh, discovered first came out it wasn't until the hero um, the hero defined came out. So I picked up the Starblaze uh, graphic novels to catch up and just loved it from the very beginning. And it's stuck in my head forever. Um, I didn't even know that Hero Denied was coming out, though, until I started posting about the bat. And someone commented on my um, Replica Prop Forum blog that it was coming out. So I was just really excited that it was coinciding like that. Awesome. Awesome. So what was it especially as a as a sequel series what attracted you to uh to the second mage series i don't remember i know i saw it in my comic book shop one day and something about the style of it or the look of it just made me want to pick it up and i did and i'm happy i did i just um i just reread the original series last night and it's still what 30 years later it still holds up so well uh, that's a uh that's a heck of a single re- uh, evening's worth of reading. It's amazing how <laughs> it's amazing how that uh, that story really develops because you you get to see Matt growing as an artist and uh, what it is at the beginning and what it is at the end are com- completely amazingly different. 
You do. And also as a storyteller, there's a lot, I didn't remember this, but there's a lot of exposition, especially in the early issues. Uh, a lot of times where uh, Mirth and Kevin will sit down after a fight or after uh, Edsel's death and talk for what in real life would have been 10, 15 minutes. So um, that kind of fades out toward the end of the first run. And the pacing of the story is much more natural in Hero Discovered. So you really can see Matt growing both as an artist and a storyteller. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the interesting things, and and we've been noticing this, I've been noticing this in Hero Denied, is that because you don't have any third-party narration, and it is especially compared to uh, Hero Defined, such a small cast that you're really engaging with, you know, Kevin's thought bubbles now, what would have typically been thought bubbles in any other comic is Kevin having these kinds of moments of talking to himself or at least talking to the ATM. It's been interesting to see. Yeah, definitely. And some of the other things I noticed rereading it, um, I love the whole fight with Sean and the dragon and noticing how Matt took the visual style of the dragon in human form and moved it over to what the dragon looked like in its real form. Just things like that. Um, the whole inside of the Styx Casino is just gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to take a look at that, uh, at the dragon again in both settings. Um, that, uh, that sounds super cool. Yeah. There's something also about the pacing of it, not the pacing that the uh, the different series came out, but inside the story. I'm a huge fan of Guillermo del Toro and the modern Spanish horror movies, the kind that, you know, they're not just jump scares. They crawl up your spine and just squeeze. And I get a lot of that from the pace at which Matt tells this story, letting it develop, letting it evolve uh, rather than, you know, a big fight every single issue. Yeah, it took me a while to put my finger on it as I've been reading reviews, and, and it hasn't been many, but uh, there's at least been you know one or two you know vocal minority reviews out there talking about the pacing of this, that it's especially this this latest series is is developing too slowly, nothing's happening, and I was thinking, wow, I'm I'm just not getting that feeling, and it is, it's. Um, you're just waiting for that other shoe to drop. You, you know, the tension is just ratcheting up and ratcheting up. Yeah, I remember when you brought that up on the podcast, and I just read issue seven last night. I think the other shoe has well and firmly dropped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to be getting to to recording the, uh, the review of that episode uh, coming soon, hopefully in the next day or two. And, um, and boy, you know, I'll just say this in advance. I mean, what an amazing issue. And yeah, absolutely. The shoe is well and firmly dropped and uh, the shit has hit the fan. And it's there's kind of a cathartic release just knowing, knowing okay, n- you know, we've been watching this get set up and now everything's moving forward. Anyways, hey, let's, uh, let's shift on over to your mage cosplay. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned a while ago... Uh, Matt posted you in Facebook, then he put you back in the comic uh, in the back there. So how did you get involved in cosplay? And out of all the things you could cosplay, why did you choose a Kevin Matchstick cosplay? Well, I think like most older fathers, I got pulled into it through my kids. For her 16th birthday, my daughter wanted one thing, and that was to go to Otakon, which was up in Baltimore at the time. I had never been to a con before and had no idea what I was getting into, but we went up, we spent the weekend. 
the first day she disappeared into the ladies room for about 45 minutes. And I had, I didn't know what she was doing. I just knew she was putting her costume on. And when she came out, she was cosplaying one of the trolls from Homestuck and I didn't know she had made this costume. It was absolutely gorgeous. It was it was stunning. Um, then the rest of the weekend, walking around, looking at all of the creativity and everything that people were doing, it really it really intrigued me. I would talk to them about how they made their costumes, what techniques they used, why they why they were doing it, and it just kind of got in the back of my head. And eventually, it's just I, I don't remember exactly when it was, but something about the bat popped into my head and it's like, I could make that. And I thought about it for years, years, going to different panels to watch prop makers, what they do, thinking about how I would put it together. And about a year ago um, for AwesomeCon, which was in June of last year, it's actually at the end of this month, this year, um, about, so about a year ago, I decided I was going to do Kevin Matchstick for AwesomeCon. And I just dug in and started working. I'd never touched, I hadn't touched a lathe since high school. I hadn't, I'd never touched a kit of mold rubber before. I'd never heard of rotocasting. Uh, I just had to learn it all from the replica prop forum and um, Bill at Punish Props. There's just so much online. It's, it's just great. Wow. It sounds like a, it, it sounds like a hell of a learning curve. I mean, you mentioned, I, a, I don't think I've ever touched a lathe. I don't know. I don't think I'd know mold rubber if it uh, came up and bit me, much less rotocasting. So how, um, yeah, how, how long did it take you to feel comfortable? How long, uh, how long have you been kind of learning this, would you say? Well, for a year. In fact, um, it was just about a year ago, I went to Nova Labs, a makerspace in Reston, for the first time, and that's where I've used a lot of their equipment to put the stuff together, um, and also now I teach casting and mold making there, uh, and I'm one of the stewards for their composites group. So it's been a, a really interesting opening new doors to hobbies for me, so the first time around, it took about two and a half months to get the first generation of the bat. That's the one that was featured in the um, in the letter column. That one, the battery was external. You can actually see the cable coming out of my sleeve and going into the bat, and the battery's hanging inside the coat. Uh, that was great, but I finished that version um, the morning of the con. Uh, that's kind of a cosplay tradition. And it turned out to be a little bit cumbersome, always having to disconnect and reconnect the battery. And of course, I had to have the trench coat, so I couldn't cosplay him uh, just with the t-shirt. So I started work on the second generation of the bat last fall, finished it up, um, and now I'm doing a third generation because I'm just not 100% happy with it yet. <laughs> So what were some of the big leaps that you were able to make? Would you say the big learnings and the big, big leaps you were able to take between version one and version two? Well, a lot of it was moving the battery inside the bat. I had to find a battery that would fit inside the barrel of a baseball bat and had enough power and enough uh, amperage to drive all of the LEDs. The thing draws about six amps, so there's a lot of power in there. Um, every picture you see of it, it's glowing just so brightly, it saturates the camera. Um, in real life, it doesn't have quite as even a shine as I would like. You get hot spots off of the LEDs. So that's what I'm trying to fix with the third generation. 
Understood. So just smooth out the globe, get less hot spots, and uh, wow, that sounds that sounds awesome. The mistake I made with the first and second generation is I wanted as much light as possible. So I got the brightest LEDs I could get, but they burn a lot of power. So what I'm doing with this third generation is using lower power LEDs so that I can put more of them in the bat, get roughly the same amount of light, actually about a third less light, but much more even distribution. So I think the glow will diffuse through the plastic of the bat better. The other problem it solves is the first and second generations actually were too bright. It was almost rude walking around the convention hall with it on and I couldn't use it at all in the evening because when people's eyes were light uh, dark adjusted it was blinding <laughs> so I, I think the uh, second the third generation will look better in real life and also be a bit more polite <laughs> so once you get and granted you're working on version three right now how long do you feel once you let let's say I'm asking you to kind of really um take a wild swag here it might be unfair let's say you get version 3 pulled together you say you've landed on it how long does it take you to put one of these together i know there's a certain amount of you're you're going through r&d right now but once you've got the r&d solved what do you estimate is the time to to build a bat good question um if I was to actually sit, know what I was doing for every part and were to just sit down and knock one out, an hour to make the shell of the bat, once now that I have the mold and the rotocasting machine and all of the, the tooling, an hour, a little more to make the shell of the bat, and maybe an afternoon to wire up the, the light core that goes in it. Nice. So you could essentially get it done in about a day, day and a half if you had it free, it sounds like. Yeah, if I was doing it like a full-time job, yes. Under, yeah, understood. And as, as hobbies are, those, those hours tend to, tend, to, <laughs> tend to come sporadically. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, how are you feeling about, um, about your plans for, for version 3? Are there any other things that you're thinking once you've got the light taken care of? Are there any other things you're thinking about doing, uh, you know, doing with the bat? Or frankly, are there any other cosplay projects, you know, inside or outside of Mage that you're thinking about exploring? Well, the second generation of the costume, which I wore to uh, Katsukon and Baltimore Comic Con, I'm really happy with. The first generation of the costume, I used the graffiti shirt, and it's not quite right. If you look in your as mentioned with the other cosplayer and the side by side shot of the comic and the cosplayer, you can see the graffiti shirt bolt is too short and it's a little on the chubby side. So I ended up uh, for the second version of the costume, I had to make my own t-shirt. Fortunately at Nova Labs, they have a vinyl cutter and a industrial style t-shirt press. So I was able to do that there. Um, that The chucks, I'm just totally pleased with. Uh, I'm making the bolt out of mold rubber and attaching it to the chucks, that was really, really my favorite part of the first generation of the costume. And it turns out that on the internet somewhere, there's somebody who's done this already. How do you take the Chuck logo off of the Chucks? And it turns out that in the Pokemon fandom, uh, girls who cosplay Misty have to do that all the time. And the secret is acetone, fingernail polish remover. And then the one other thing I did for the second generation of the costume was dye the pants. They're just a pair of off-the-shelf Carhartt cargo pants, but they weren't quite the right color. 
So uh, Rit dye, two parts Kelly green to one part yellow made them perfect. So how many pairs of pants or how many pieces of test fabric did you have to go through before you settled on the right color? Because it seems to me that that could just take forever. Fortunately, I got it right on the first try because I only had one pair of pants and the con was the next day. (laughs) Wow. You know, (laughs) that's awesome. That is very lucky, but very cool. So the, the only other plans for the costume going forward. Well, I've got two things I have to fix. One is the beard. And I want to set the story straight, the the story straight in that picture in the comic book. I had a beard. It's just, my beard is pathetic. So I have to figure out some way to make a beard that you can actually see from further away than about a foot. Uh, Also at this point, the least Kevin like part of the cosplay, unfortunately is me. So I've already lost 20 pounds. I would like to lose another 20. And physique-wise, it wouldn't hurt to hit the gym a few more times. Well, I, I don't think anybody's judging you that way. And I also, you know, you think about, you mentioned the other cosplayer. I think is he goes by the name uh, Jessa Loris, at least his online name. That's, I think, a merging of his name and his wife's name or girlfriend's name. They're a cosplay team. But, uh, you know, he certainly has a physique that... Uh, that the majority of us, you know, should not try to should not try to compete with. I'm going to veer backwards. Actually, you had said that your daughter introduced you to uh, to cosplay. Uh, besides working on this, you'd mentioned she had put together an amazing cosplay costume, and you were inspired to begin working on Kevin Matchstick. What other cosplay costumes have you worked on? Have you worked on any with her? Yes, I'm her prop maker. So I made her a Magneto helmet. Uh, there's a guy on YouTube called Evil Ted Smith who has a great tutorial on foam crafting, basically making cosplay helmets and armor out of foam floor mats. So I followed a lot of his stuff. She's also uh, in, what's it called? Emperor Lelouch from Code Geass an anime. So I've made her two versions of his helmet and I've also worked on some other props for her. Awesome. That is great. Um, how has it, you mentioned that, you know, going around to conventions with the bat, it's uh, a little too bright. The previous two versions have been, it sounds like you were lucky to be able to bring it in. I believe that when uh, Matt had posted the photos of his uh, son and, and I believe daughter-in-law to be cosplaying Kevin and Mirth. Uh, there's a photo of them where, you know, Brennan has his version of the bat, which uh, because I think it was a bat, he was not actually allowed to bring into the, uh, to the convention. I think it was New York Comic Con. Did you have any problems being able to bring the bat into any event so far? I have not. So the bat is hollow. Uh, both the first generation version and the second. It's made out of a fairly flexible plastic. The only thing I've ever seen is at the prop check, uh, one of the people there kind of bent it back and forth to make sure it wasn't, you know, like a solid piece of acrylic or that kind of thing. So I haven't run into any trouble yet. I hope that I don't because the version that lights up is a lot more impressive than the version that doesn't. I have one that I kept from my research and development uh, just in case this ever becomes a problem. And I did take it to Baltimore Comic-Con and it's just kind of a letdown. You know, you're a guy in a t-shirt walking around with a white plastic bat. How has reaction been when 
year around? How many people have recognized it? Um, just what's what's been the general reaction? Well, the f- most memorable reaction was at AwesomeCon last year, and that's when a friend of Matt's saw me and said, I have to get your picture, I have to get your picture, and he sent it to Matt right that day. So then a few days later, I get, I think it was on Facebook, I get a Facebook request to become friends with Matt Wagner, and he starts private messaging me about can he use the photo in the comic book and of course i was just tickled pink besides that we go to two different kinds of conventions i said my daughter's really into anime so we go to a lot of anime conventions and there people don't know the character but we've also gone to things like awesome con which is more of a general fandom and baltimore comic-con and i get a lot more reaction there The other thing that's kind of funny is because the lightning bolt is such a common motif among superheroes, I've had people come up asking me if I'm Captain Marvel, if I'm Shazam, if I'm Madman. Uh, It's like, no, I'm Kevin Matchstick. Yeah, there is that can that can definitely happen. And I imagine, especially with this Shazam movie that they're working on, uh, that uh, that there might be a little bit more of that. But but none of them. I have the awesome bat. Um, So, hey, let me uh, if well, first of all, before I kind of close out and take us in another direction is there anything that we didn't touch upon any uh you know any questions that i didn't ask that you wished i had asked that you'd like to share with uh with the other fans out there or anybody who's maybe thinking about taking a leap into uh into you know cosplay just that it's a lot of fun and one thing about it is i grew up on a farm and if you're a farmer just by necessity, you have to be a maker just to keep the machines in repair and all of the different material that you have to have and custom things that you have to make because, you know, your tractor is from 1946. When I moved to Virginia and got into off my office work, I basically lost all of that. So part of what I really enjoy about this is learning to make things again. So when I go to Nova Labs, you know, we have two laser cutters. We've got a full uh, wood shop. We've got 3D printers. I've used all of them for different parts of making the bat and meeting people who are making new types of drones for humanitarian uh, missions in, you know, rescue situations and that kind of thing. It's just really cool. So I'd encourage anyone who wants to get into the maker movement but doesn't know where to start, Pick a character, make a costume. Wow, that sounds that sounds awesome. Now I know in the news recently I had heard about some maker spaces that were unfortunately closing down. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the story was behind it. I don't know if it's just an organizational finance issue or that. Um, I'm not sure how that impa- you know impacts things nationally. Is for instance your maker space? Does it seem to be solid and unaffected by that? It might just be various regional places that have had to close. Have you heard anything about that? That was, actu- that was actually one company. I think it was called Tech Shop. They were a for-profit company that ran makerspaces in different areas, and their business model just didn't work. So they had to go, they had to liquidate. We've had a lot of people, we call them Tech Shop refugees, coming to Nova Labs now. Nova Labs is different. It's a nonprofit, and it's volunteer-run. So we don't have a bottom line that we have to be turning a profit on. And we've worked with a lot of really good companies who have donated equipment or uh, donating donated services and money and time. It's a very strong community. I'm told that we're actually one of the most active makerspaces in the world. 
Wow, that's awesome. It sounds like it sounds like a thriving and really great community, great way to meet people and and uh, and just, you know, go out there and make stuff. It's, it's an awesome movement. I think a while ago when we were talking also completely in a different direction, you were doing something through Makerspace or similar uh, resources with chocolate. Yes. As part of learning how to do the casting and mold making, I now teach that casting and mold making class. And for holidays, Christmas, um, Thanksgiving, not Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day, probably Mother's Day, I'm teaching a chocolate casting class now. Wow. That's awesome. And tasty. So, uh, yes, <laughs> very cool. You can just uh, you can just make it and, and then enjoy it immediately. Or, or, or give it to friends and family and enjoy it in a completely different way. Hey, so Steve, I'm going to close with asking you about, um, you know, this is just wild speculation and, you know, just your thoughts about what's happening in Hero Denied. I think given that, you know, issue seven is such a, uh, such a big issue, what are your thoughts about what's happening in Hero Denied at large? And what do you think? Do you have any uh, thoughts or speculation about what's coming up? Just one, and that was, we, we talked about issue seven being the one where the shoe dropped. I'd have to go back to look at Hero Defined, but I don't think he's gotten to the Dayumont this early in the series before. Certainly not in Hero Discovered, where really there was no Dayumont. Um, you've mentioned this yourself. It ends with Kevin walking down through the sticks to get to the top. And then Emil killing the Umbra Sprite, or not killing the Umbra Sprite, but bashing his head in. And then the building collapses. In Hero Discovered, I think it was like the last five issues, four or five issues, when they get into the mountain with, um, to take on the Pale Encanter, where things really come to a head. So I'm just really looking forward to the next, what, eight issues? Because I think it's going to be a wild ride, right? And and I think you mentioned. Um, I, I think you may you may have misspoken. Because yeah, in Hero Defined, uh, not discovered. It's the last five issues where where things really start to go into that strong final act. And you know what occurs to me here is part of what shocked me about what happens in issue seven. I, I mean, I expected at some point things were going to ramp up, but this is the kind of action you expect to see happen at the close. I mean, this looks like third act kind of stuff. Um, and it's happening smack dab in the middle of the story, which in some ways for me makes me, you know, just, <laughs> you know, all bets are off. Who knows which direction it's going to go? If this is the middle, either we're escalating, you know, certainly this is going to continue escalating to the end. But if this is the middle, you know, what's happening in the third act that escalates it, that takes that action, you know, to the next level. And I'm assuming at some point, of course, the Fisher King will finally be revealed. Maybe that has something to do with it. But yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a heck of a ride. Well, think, speaking of the third act, Matt Wagner, if I do not get a confrontation between Kevin and the Umbra Sprite, I am unfriending you on on Facebook. <laughs> it's been a long time it has been a long time coming it is interesting in this issue where uh, you know it's it's also very clear that the umbra sprites focus though is still on the fisher king and it's very easy to focus solely on kevin but he is the champion the fisher king is the goal and i think yeah i i agree i think uh it's not going to make sense or it's going to be a you know a bit of a letdown if we don't get any 
any showdown between the Umbra Sprite and Kevin Matchstick. And of course, if we don't get something revealed about the Fisher King. And frankly, I've always been wondering, and, and it might just be something that is part of the character design, that, that there's nothing to reveal about it. But we never saw the Umbra Sprite's face in Hero Discovered. We never see the Umbra Sprite's face so far in Hero Denied. And, you know, that could carry through all the way. There might be no reason or no need to see the Umbra Sprite's face. But I I can't help but keep going back to, we've been trained by, or I've been trained by movies for decades, that usually that means that you're holding back to give some kind of reveal. And um, that might not happen in this case, but it's it's been nagging at the back of my head. Why don't we get to? And maybe maybe it's simply because you just can't put a face on evil. I'm less I'm less eager to see the Umber Sprite's face than I am to see the Fisher King. Rereading Discovered last night, I had forgotten that the Fisher King actually appears as the cat in there. I'd also forgotten about the Umber Sprite's physical decay over the course of the series, which I thought Matt just did brilliantly from a a lean, elegant uh, businessman to just this corpulent with mass with an almost pig-like face at the very end. No, absolutely. That's a neat progression there. And And I think there's stuff going on with that progression and with the plant and... Uh, so any other uh, any other last thoughts, um, you know, uh, any ideas about... So if you could have... We already had Joe Fat show up again. Uh, any other characters from uh, from Kevin Matchstick's past that you'd be interested in seeing? Or maybe... And this is purely speculation. There might not be any. But anybody else who might have been referred to in the past that, uh, aside from the Fisher King, that you'd like to see? I was really disappointed that Kirby Hero died, especially dying off camera like that. I had almost thought about making his uh, denim jacket and the lion symbol. We have an industrial embroidery machine at the makerspace. So it sits there going, do it, do it. And now Kirby's dead. Yeah. And that is a, I'll tell you what, I, <laughs> that is an awesome jacket. The, uh, the design, you know, being evocative of the, of the Superman shield and yet at the same time, the lion's head with the lion being, you know, Hercules's symbol uh, works on so many levels. Just the some of these reimaginings that, that I think that's probably one of the one of the best working reimaginings of a superhero iconic symbol in the series to date, just because it has so much going on with it. That would be that would be really cool to see. Matt does that so well. Uh, the Wild Hunt and the leader of the Wild Hunt on the motorcycle, uh, just over and over again, he he takes these old myths and puts them in modern times so very well. Even just in issue seven with the Umbra Sprite, ta- not the Umbra Sprite, um, one of the Gracklethorns talking about getting a call on the Bounty Hotline. Of course, they're going to use telephones <laughs> and the bounty hotline. Exactly, and uh, the sheer the sheer joy on their faces is just uh, is just amazing to see there. Also, um, well, cool. Hey, Steve, thanks a lot for uh, for taking the time to talk about this. Uh, I uh, I think people are going to really enjoy hearing about it. What uh, what I'll do is I'm going to put a link also to your to your blog where you detail making the bat. Uh, and hopefully you'll continue to um, you know to share and journal your experiences as you move on to to version three. 
uh, I think there's a lot of people out there who'd be really interested to see how you're putting this together. Um, I, I'll leave it open to you one more time. Anything else you want to mention that we didn't cover? Just great talking with you, Kevin, and I look forward to hearing the podcast. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for taking the time today, Steve, and looking forward to speaking with you again and uh, seeing what you've got in store and when you unveil version three of that bat. Take care. You too.